turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 53. We're going to look at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke 22 uh, on page 829. So turn there, and kind of the kind of the beginning of the end, kind of the the first of the final few dominoes starts to fall uh, this morning. After uh, after this text here, Jesus is going to you know be be arrested. He's going to go before Pilate, or he's going to stand trial before the religious leaders. They're going to send him to Pontius Pilate. He's going to send him to Herod. Herod's going to send him back to Pilate, and then he's going to end up on on the cross. And so we'll consider that kind of trajectory of events during Lent uh, next year. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna maybe have a couple more uh, sermons here in Luke. Then we're going to spend the season of Advent in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at uh, kind of Matthew's account of the birth of Christ and the, the narrative surrounding that. We're going to take a few months uh, off uh, after my son is born in late December. So we're going to have a few months of just kind of some other uh, other teaching and different kinds of things. And then when we when we uh, yeah we'll we'll hit the ground running in uh, in Luke for the the Lent season of 2022. But it's all kind of a forecast to say that this is the beginning of the end. This is kind of the, the you know, the, the, again, the first domino to fall in all of those uh, kind of events being uh, kind of being set into, into motion. And this, uh, this text with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus kind of breaks down into three parts, three, three things that happen and three, uh, you know, ways that, the ways that Jesus responds in particular. We're going to see Jesus say three things, right? He's going to speak to Judas. So we're going to see Judas and what Jesus says to Judas. Peter and the disciples, but really Peter is kind of the the one representative there. Peter and what Jesus says to Peter, and then the religious leaders and what Jesus says to them. So we're going to kind of bookend our consideration of this text around the words of Jesus to those three parties, Judas, Peter, and the religious leaders. And we're going to just kind of unpack them and, and kind of consider what Jesus might be saying to us through them, what sins Jesus might be calling us to repent of through them, uh, what kinds of, of you know godliness and faithfulness Jesus might be calling uh, us to through them? So, I will read Luke twenty-two verses forty-seven to fifty-three. Then I'll pray, and then we'll get going. It says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then those who were around him saw what would follow, and they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, He said, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, did you not lay hands on me? Or you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, apart from your Holy Spirit, um, these are just words on a page, right? They, they, they we need your Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and to, to drill it deep into our hearts and to bring life where there was 
deadness and to bring life, uh, to, to bring, uh, you know, to bring fresh vision where there was, was blindness. We ask, Holy Spirit, for you to come and meet us here. God, apart from your Spirit, uh, my preaching will fall flat. Apart from your Holy Spirit, uh, we will not uh, be able to hear and be affected by the Word of God. And so we ask humbly and boldly, we ask you to come here and work in and through these next few minutes. Work through the preaching and the hearing and the meditation on your Word so that we might leave here having been changed by it. All right, it says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. So still speaking is referring to what we looked at last week, which was Jesus and the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as his interactions with the disciples. After that, he had you know, kind of told them, uh, I'm, I'm going to go pray. I want you to pray for me. Pray for yourself. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. He went off and prayed. There was this like huge, intense, weighty moment. He's, you know, beads of, of blood are kind of coming out of his sweat. It's, it's an intense moment for Jesus. He comes back, finds that his disciples have fallen asleep they're indifferent to or unaware of the gravity of the moment and why it's so important and so uh, Jesus is waking them up right wake up pray that you don't fall into temptation pray for me on the eve of what is about to happen in my life and as he's saying those words and communicating those things to those disciples up comes this big mob crowd they've got uh, clubs They've got swords. Uh, the other gospels say that they've got uh, torches and they've got lanterns. It's this big kind of, you know, mob that appears to be bloodthirsty. And it's led by Judas, one of the twelve. It's made up of chief priests and temple officers and elders, which, uh, you know, kind of represents the religious leaders, the military leaders, the civil and governmental leaders. It's kind of all of the you know, the who's who of, of kind of leadership uh, in and around Jerusalem. They've kind of assembled everyone to bring them all out in this one uh, kind of, you know, group mob uh, to, to find Jesus and, and arrest him and bring him into, into custody. And it's led by Judas. We didn't see it in Luke, but Judas parted company with Jesus and the rest of the disciples earlier that night. We can see it in uh, John chapter 13. I think we have a slide for it. Um, gives us a little bit more insight into uh, what uh, yeah what happened at the the Last Supper um, in Luke. It just says that you know Jesus prophesied that someone was going to betray him, and they wondered who it was. We see more insight in John. It says after saying these things, Jesus was troubled. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They looked, tried to figure out who it was going to be. One of the disciples, the one that Jesus loved, that's John. He's reclining by Jesus' side, and Simon Peter motions to him to ask who it was. So John, at the prompting of Peter, asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who is it that's going to betray you? Jesus says, it's the one who I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then John kind of adds this commentary. No one knew why he said this. No one knew what was ha- what exactly. We, was, we were all a little bit confused. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, that Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast or go give something to the poor. We didn't know. After receiving the bread, Judas immediately went out and it was, it was night. So that happened 
hours ago after the Last Supper, and now Judas is kind of coming back. I mean, after, after Judas left, then you've got a whole bunch of other stuff happening in the Gospel of John. Jesus uh, promises the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. Uh, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray. And now here uh, Judas is kind of re- reintroduced back into their midst with this big group of people. Judas has apparently been looking for days now. Uh, back in Luke 22, we saw Luke 22 verse 6 that Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd. So for several days now, he's been looking, how can I... Uh, you know, make good on the promise that I made to the religious leaders that they paid me 30 pieces of silver for. How can I make good on that and deliver Jesus into their hands? I need to find an opportunity to do it, ideally one where there's not going to be a bunch of people around. And so after the, after the, the Last Supper, Ju- Jesus has a custom of going to the Mount of Olives to pray. We saw that last week. And so Judas thinks, all right, now is my opportunity. Right, Jesus, I'm, I, I'm confident that I know where he's going to be based on where he always goes. Uh, everyone else is at home, in bed, it's dark out. This is the ideal time to betray Jesus into the hands of his, of his enemies. A lot of different thoughts. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, would, I, mean I think that the Bible is fairly clear on who, Jesus is, or who Judas is and kind of what we can get some insight into his heart. There are different, you know, people that kind of, kind of, think and kind of conjecture in different ways. Some people say Judas uh, was a believer, that he really believed in Jesus, that he really trusted Christ, and he had a momentary lapse, uh, and then later repented. And so in the end, he was saved, and we'll see Judas in, in heaven. I don't think that the preponderance of sure points to that, but people will point at Matthew 27 and Acts chapter 1, where it's very clear that Judas feels really badly about what he did. So he goes and he gives the money back to the religious leaders. And then he actually feels even worse and goes and commits suicide and hangs himself. And Acts chapter 1 is pretty graphic. It says that his body fell and it like it burst open and his guts spilled out all over the place. So they say, you know, Judas clearly felt bad. And the catch is like there's a difference between feeling bad and being consumed with regret and even self self-loathing to the point of, you know, suicide and actually repenting and coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus and asking him for forgiveness, right? Peter, uh, we're going to see next week, I believe. Um, yeah, Peter uh, commits a very heinous sin himself, and yet he is uh, he, he responds by repenting, running to Jesus, confessing. Jesus, you know, forgives him and kind of reinstates him. Judas does nothing like that. Judas runs away from Jesus feels really bad, but doesn't really repent as best as we can discern. Something, okay, so Judas was a believer, right? He was with the, the disciples. He was, you know, followed them around for, for years. Jesus was his pastor, his mentor. So Judas was a believer. He was saved, but then he lost his salvation because he stopped believing in God. And so God took the salvation away from him that he had, had promised him. The catch is, uh, the overwhelming weight of Scripture teaches that, that that's not possible, that, that you can't lose your salvation because God God doesn't lose his children, right? Once God saves a person, he keeps a person. And so ultimately our salvation is kind of, it hinges on, it, it rests on God's sovereign hand and not our 
faithfulness or our ability to keep on believing, right? Our, our salvation is unshakable and unchangeable. In John 6, we see Jesus talking, and he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of the Father, that all of those that he has given to me, that I will lose none of them, but that I will raise all of them up on the last day. So you can't lose your salvation. It's never happened before to anyone. It never will happen. So, so that, so, so, I mean, I would argue that Judas uh, wasn't a believer who experienced a momentary lapse in faith and then later repented because we don't see his repentance. Judas certainly wasn't a believer who lost his salvation because that's not something that you, that can happen. You can't lose your salvation. But you, but you can fake your salvation. I think that's probably what was going on with Judas. I think at the, at, at, at the very heart of who Judas was, at the core of the matter, Judas just wasn't really a follower of Jesus. He didn't really love Jesus. He didn't really trust Jesus. He loved other things more than he loved Jesus. He, he wasn't a part of the people of God. He just hung around the people of God. He was an unregenerate believer who kind of wanted to be uh, immersed in the, the people of God. In fact, uh, John, who was writing some of the, the narrative that we read earlier about Judas, uh, writes another letter in 1 John chapter 2. We read John talk, say this. He says, Do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's all, none of that is from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's see the next slide, too. There are those who have gone out from us. They were not from us. Or, they, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So that's John writing, John was there in that moment when Judas comes up with the crowd and the torches and the lanterns and, and the, the clubs and the, the swords. John spent a lot of time with Judas over the three years prior to Jesus' death, and you can't help but wonder if John had Judas in mind when he wrote those words in 1 John chapter 2. They were with us, but they were not really one of us because they didn't persevere. They fell away see Jesus mentioned elsewhere uh, in, in the, the gospel, or see Judas mentioned elsewhere in the gospels, way, you know, texts and instances and examples that make us tend to think that he wasn't really a believer, that he was actually in league with the devil. John, John chapter 6, verse 20, uh, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He said, didn't I choose you guys? I chose all of you, and yet one of you is a devil. In John chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, we see Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus's feet with uh, expensive ointment. She's wiping them with his his hair. It's this like really beautiful scene. The whole house it like smells amazing because of this, and everyone's like, man, like they're they're commending her for her faith. They're uh, you know her faith is remarkable, and they are impressed by it. There's one guy who's kind of in the corner scoffing and not really uh, giving approval to what's happening, and it's Judas, one of the disciples would later betray him. John kind of adds parenthetically. And, and 
Judah says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Which is ironic because Jesus was poor. So, right, it's not like, you know, this isn't like Judas, you know, speaking, you know, truth to power, right? Like some excessive billionaire who is living this, like, extravagant life and completely indifferent to the the poor people and the suffering people that are around him. This is Jesus, a poor person. This would be like going up to a, a, you know, a a poor or middle class person at their wedding and kind of, you know, counting up how much everything cost added and judging them for, for, you know, having this one time supposed to be special event and kind of saying, why did you, why did you do this? Because, of course, John says, uh, Judas's motives weren't sincere, right? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He had charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas uh, was a, a thief. He was a criminal. He stole money from Jesus. He stole money from the disciples. He stole money from the people who had given generously to support the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And he did so kind of out of, posi- out of a position of strength, right? He was the he was the finance, he was the bookkeeper. He was the guy who kind of tracked all of the incoming funds and outgoing expenses and these kinds of things. And, and he used that position to enrich himself at the expense of Jesus and the disciples and the people that the money was intended for. He loved money more than he loved Jesus. He loved the world more than he loved Jesus. And he was enticed by Satan away from Jesus to uh, money into the world and the, the things that the world can offer. Earlier in Luke 22, um, back in verse 5, it says that Judas uh, conspired with the religious leaders because, and they, they the, 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 how they enticed him, how they pulled him in was money. The other Gospels, we see that it was specifically uh, 30 pieces of silver, which is not a lot of money. It's a few thousand dollars, something like that. You know, a couple, couple weeks work for uh, a laborer, but uh, so not a lot. I mean, a lot of money, right? A significant amount of money, but not a lot of money when you consider handing your friend and mentor and someone who trusts you uh, over into the hands of the people that want to murder him, right? It's it's when you, when you think about the the weight of the act that Judas was lured into, uh, the money seems awfully insignificant when you when you consider that. Judas is a bad guy. Judas is a bad guy. Let's flip back to, to the text for today. Pat. So Judas uh, comes up with this crowd of people to Jesus, and it says that he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 4, the, the parallel passages in the other Gospels kind of indicate that this was like the sign that Judas had kind of made beforehand. The guy that I kiss is going to be the guy that you should arrest and kind of take you know, uh, yeah, Matthew 26 says, the one I kiss is the man, sees him and take him away. Verse 48, Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a, with a kiss, right? Really, Judas, this is going to be, this is the, you know, can't you see the irony of what's taking, what's taking, right? Couldn't you just like have whispered into the ear of one of the guards, like that's the guy in the, whatever, the blue robe or something. Couldn't you've had some other code word, right? I don't know. Omaha. Charlie Horn. What, like, 
Couldn't you have had some word that you could have? Why did? Why was the the code to signify who that they were supposed to arrest and haul off to his uh, violent, painful death? Why is that um, a kiss? It's a little bit reminiscent of Proverbs chapter twenty-seven, verse six. It says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy." context here, it seems to imply that, uh, you know, a true and good and godly friend is someone who loves you enough to confront you, press in, right? If they see you in sin, if they see you doing something foolish, if they see you doing something that's going to invite consequences into your life, a real friend, a true friend would say something, right? And so the proverb is saying it's better to be wounded by a friend than it is, you know, for, for an enemy to just uh, kind of multiply and kind of uh, be, be very profuse in how they are affirming you and kissing you and saying, go ahead, do what you are, are doing, despite the fact that it might kill you or imperil your soul. A friend would confront when necessary out of love. An enemy would not. An enemy would applaud and just kind of let you go right ahead uh, into the thing that's hurting you because the enemy ultimately has indifference in his heart toward you or even resentment in his heart toward you. That's Judas, right? He's, He's faking it. He doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't trust Jesus. He doesn't want to follow Jesus. He loves the world more than he loves Jesus and he's happy to, you know, kind of flattery and kind of these profuse, you know, kisses and kind of uh, a, a big smile at Jesus when in his heart there's anger and resentment and entitlement and selfishness and a willingness to hand him over uh, to his his death. It's also ironic, right, the, the, that Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss because, uh, uh, and this is kind of instructive for us, I think, uh, uh, to kiss someone is to communicate rightly or wrongly, honestly or deceptively. It's to at least communicate and represent that you love that person and that you care about that person and that you're loyal to that person. And so Judas commits an inherently, uh, an, an essentially unloving, disloyal act under the guise of loyalty and and love. It's betrayal disguised as a kiss. It's, a, it's an incredibly wicked and selfish act that's dressed up and kind of disguised to make it look like it's a religious or spiritual or godly act. And so we would do well to look at G- Judas and consider how Jesus re- rebukes Judas for that exact kind of thing and look at our own life and look at our own heart and think, where am I, where am I doing things that externally uh, appear to be spiritual and righteous and godly, but they might be masking an inner heart that's marked by selfishness and love of the world instead of loving God. Jesus walks through a few of these in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you give money, don't do it publicly, right, with the, with the giant check like they have on the, you know, publisher's clearinghouse or whatever. Like, Give money quietly in secret. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because if you give money publicly, then you're just, it's just a selfish act. I want everyone to see how great and how generous and how giving I am. And so I'm going to do this seemingly, appearingly righteous act externally, but really it's masking a heart that's just selfish and that just loves myself.
yourself. Same thing with praying, right? Don't pray in public with big words and, you know, like really try to lay it on thick and, you know, impress everyone with all of the theology and like your, your, like just how you've arrived and you're this enlightened prayer. He says, pray by yourself in, uh, in, in private. Same thing with fasting. If you fast, which is a good and godly practice that we should, you know, consider and do from time to time, but when you fast, don't like mess your face all up and make sure that everyone knows that you're fasting so that they can be impressed at how you're fasting, right? Jesus, he says, just fast quietly, privately. Don't tell anyone that you're doing it. Jesus, whether it's giving, praying, or fasting, Jesus says it's possible to do that seemingly religious act in a way that's ultimately selfish and self-focused and self-concerned. Uh, so don't do that. Judas does the same thing. I'm going to do a selfish, self-focused act of betraying Jesus for money, but I'm going to do it in a way that appears religious and impressive. It's not enough to do things that appear godly and spiritual and religious to everyone around us. Go to church, send your kids to Christian school, right? Volunteer, pray in you know, before your meal in a, in a restaurant, right? It's not enough to do things that appear religious to everyone around you. You actually have to cultivate godliness and humility and kindness and Christ-likeness in your soul, in your heart, where no one can see it. Religious external behavior that's masking selfish faithlessness is not godly. It's, it's wicked. It's the way of Judas. Then verse 49 those who were around him saw what would follow. This is the disciples. When they saw him, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Jesus had just told them at the the Last Supper, get a sword, right? He said, uh, get a money bag, uh, you know, get some supplies, what you'll need. If you don't have a sword, sell your clothes so that you can have a sword to protect yourself. They said, is this this now, is, is that what you were talking about? This right now? Uh, should we get our swords out right now? One of them doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer. Uh, the Gospel of John gives us further insight. That's Peter, right? One of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest. Uh, John also says that man's name. His name was Malchus. So Peter struck Malchus, the servant of the high priest, the, the servant of the high priest, and cut his right ear off. Verse fifty-one. And Jesus said, "No more of this." And he touched his ear and healed him. See some further insight into this exact moment when Jesus heals the ear of the high priest and what he says, right? In, in Luke, he just says, no more of this. But in Matthew, he says, put your sword back in its place, Peter. All who take the sword, or yeah, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And he continues, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But now then, the scriptures must be fulfilled. John 18, he says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has, has given to me? So the disciples are saying, Jesus, you told us to bring swords. You told us it would get violent. That's what's about to happen. We are ready to fight. We're ready to defend you. Jesus is saying, guys, relax. Right? I told you to keep a sword on hand for self-defense in case you were robbed. I didn't mean that you were supposed to... Uh, mount a violent, uh, you know, overthrow of the the government. I never meant that I wanted you to keep 
people from arresting me. I never meant that you wanted to, that I wanted you to attempt to murder and take the life of an innocent man named Malchus. And Jesus also says, besides, uh, I don't, I don't need you, the, the eleven of you and your swords to defend me. I am, I am God, right? I, I could, I could snap my fingers and these people would all be, you know, done, done away with. I could, I could say the word and millions of angels would be right here ready to do my bidding and ready to destroy these guys. Put your swords away. I can, I can handle it. And the reason why I haven't done any of those things, the reason why I haven't defended myself against them or I haven't summoned angels to come and defend me against them is because uh, this is the cup that my Father has given me to drink. This is what the Scriptures have said must happen and it must be fulfilled which is very similar to what Jesus said in John 10 earlier in his life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is saying, Peter, disciples, relax. Nothing's happening to me that I am not actively deciding and choosing to let happen to me. I'm stronger and more powerful than these people. If I didn't want to go with them, I wouldn't go. If I didn't want to go to the cross, I would not go. What do we learn from this? What what do we learn from Jesus and Judas, right? Jesus uh, rebukes Judas for faithlessness and for, uh, you know, failing to persevere, for loving the world more than he loves Jesus, for, you know, committing, uh, you know, wicked, selfish acts under the, the guise of and the pretense of uh, things that are, that are righteous and, and, and godly. We learn a lot from Jesus and Judas. What do we learn from Jesus and Peter? Be patient. Be kind. Be slow to anger. Don't be quick to retaliate. Don't be quick to bow up in self-defense. Don't delude yourself into thinking that Jesus needs you to defend his cause or take care of him like he's a, you know, someone who's in distress and you're his hero that's going to save him. We're not careful, especially in kind of our, our contemporary climate that's very polarized and very contentious and and just at one of perpetual outrage at other people who aren't like me, we can start to embody that. We can start to embody a posture that's not loving and kind and charitable, where we don't assume the best about other people. We're always looking for a fight. We're always looking for an argument. We always want to debate. We always want to show everyone how right we are and how wrong they are. Every hill is a hill worth dying on. If anyone oversteps their bounds, then we're going to circle the wagons and and kind of make, you know, if we give them an inch, they'll take a mile. It's a fight. It's a battle. Have your sword ready. Swing at anyone who gets close. That's the, that's the spirit of Peter. Again, a lot of us, a lot of us today, a lot of culture today kind of adopts the spirit of Peter. And Jesus is just the opposite. Put your sword away. Don't, don't, don't sit around uh, thinking about and, and kind of, 
you know, plotting about how bad the other side is and how, you know, how they want to bring, you know, don't sit around trying to justify to yourself how, uh, you know, combative and defensive you can be against the other side because they want to bring our society down. I'm the only hope to save our church. I'm the only hope to save our country against those people that want to destroy it. We get madder and madder. We start to see other people as um, enemies instead of friends, adversaries instead of neighbors, opponents instead of fellow human beings, which is exactly how Peter sees the world, right? Here's this, here's this man named Malchus who God loves and created and who did nothing wrong. He's just, do, he's just at work. He's just doing his job, but I'm going to swing my sword at his head and maybe kill him because in my mind, he's an enemy, he's an opponent, he's someone that I need to defeat. Jesus rebukes him. If you've convinced yourself that Christianity is about winning the fight or winning the argument or proving the other guy wrong, or when you punch me, I punch back, or I'm not going down without a fight, that's not how... Jesus understood the Christian life. Here's how Jesus understood the Christian life. A few of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have this on the slide, Pat. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of against you falsely on my account. When that happens, you are to rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Here's how Peter describes the heart of Christ in the face of persecution. This is Peter. This is the dude who swung his sword at Malchus. Time to think about it and kind of rethought. For to you, for to this you have been called, the people of God, right? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. way of Jesus is not to always be at the ready to defend yourself and and kind of be bowed up and combative against anyone and everyone that doesn't agree with you. The way of Jesus looks more like standing down, being humble, and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. That's Judas, verses 47 to 48. Persevere, don't fake it. Love Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus. Don't pretend to love Jesus while secretly loving yourself and the world more than you love Jesus. That's Judas in verses 47 to 48. Peter in verses 49 to 51. Be humble, be kind, be patient. Repent of that instinctive response to always want to return fire and retaliate and fight about everything. And then finally, verses 52 to 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, 
Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, did you not lay hands on me? But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Saying, come on guys, like, don't you think, isn't this a little much? Aren't you a little overstaffed here? I'm, I'm just a homeless, itinerant preacher who walks around with nothing and, uh, you know, uh, you could have sent an intern and I would have I gone with him. I would have, like, willingly surrendered myself to him. Why are you here with this, you know, right, army, with this kind of army, this battalion of armed guards? I, I get Peter's kind of a knucklehead and he started swinging his sword around, but I told him not to, right? I took care of him. I'm not some revolutionary. I'm not some warlord. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a particularly violent person. I'm just a guy who preaches the gospel and does miracles and heals people. That's about it. You don't need a ton of people to arrest me. So why did you bring all these people and why right now? Why at this moment in the middle of the night did you come and arrest me in the garden of Gethsemane, right? I'm in the temple courts every day teaching. You could have saved the walk. You could have, you know, saved yourself having to get out of bed at two in the morning and come out here by it. But Jesus says, I know why, I know why you did it, right? I know why you brought the swords and the clubs. And I know specifically why you came here to this place at this hour, because this is your hour. power of, of darkness, right? The problem with the temple courts, the problem with one o'clock in the afternoon is it's too public. Everyone can see it. Everyone's there. People are there. You're going to be held accountable for what you do at that place at that time because there's light shining on it. Now you're under the cover of darkness, which is where sin thrives. It's where it lives and dwells and breeds and, and thrives. Right? It's, it's true that the world system is opposed to God. And it's true that to walk with God and obey God, you have to push back against the grain and go against the world. But, but even, even with that being the, even though the world loves sin and is fundamentally opposed to God, it's still quite difficult to throw yourself into sin and selfishness in the middle of the world, the public sphere in broad daylight. Most people that throw themselves into sin and selfishness do it in the dark, right? That's why no one, no one knocks on their boss's door and says, just so you know, about to go steal some time and money from the company right now. They like sneak away, right? No one, no one like posts on Facebook when they're about to cheat on their spouse or, you know, whenever someone, whenever someone's going to engage in gossip or slander, right, the first thing that every off-color joke or every, like, inappropriate thing that anyone ever says or does, the first thing that they do is kind of look around, make sure that no one is, is, is looking or make sure that no one is listening because sin thrives in the dark and it thrives in anonymity and it thrives when the person thinks no one will ever know about what I'm about to do. Right? The, the sin thrives under the cover of darkness. The power of darkness gives sin its strength. Which is why, for what it's worth, which is why Jesus saved us into a church. Right? So that we can be a part of a community 
a, a group of people so that none of us are living alone, experiencing temptation alone, experiencing opportunities to sin alone when no one would ever watch us. It's much harder to walk with God alone than it is to walk with God as part of a church, which is why God saves us and puts us into His church, calls us to be a member of His church. It's infinitely more difficult to walk with God alone because sin thrives under the cover of and under and through the power of darkness. Consider this. I can say 100% certainty without a doubt, I'm not a prophet, but I can say with 100% certainty that you there is no end to the, the sin and folly and self-destruction that you will throw yourself into, there's no end to, like, you will, without a doubt, 100% commit life-altering, eternity-affecting sin if two things are in place. If you have the desire to do it, and if you have the opportunity to do it. If you really want to commit adultery, then, then, then when the opportunity comes, you'll, you'll do it. If you really want to become addicted to drugs or alcohol or any other number of unhealthy things, then when the opportunity comes, you will do it. If you, if you really want to murder a person, then when you stumble upon the opportunity to do it, you will do, there, there's no end to the sin that you will indulge in, provided that you A, want to, and B, can, have, have the opportunity to, to do so our task as followers of Christ is to, is to fight against sin and to guard against sin and to repent of our sin at all costs. And the way that we do it is by attacking both the desire for sin and the opportunity for sin. The desire for sin is a matter of the heart. It's a long-term strategy, right? It involves cultivating love for Jesus and then and then uh, you know as our love for Jesus grows it outweighs it outmatches our heart's instinctive love for self and for the world right the, the, the new affection of Christ expels the old affection of the world. So we cultivate new affections. The more you love God, the more you love Jesus, the less you'll love sin. The desire to sin will begin to fade away. That's the the long-term strategy of choking out the desire for sin. But along the way, the stopgap that kind of helps you as you pursue that long-term strategy of choking out the desire for, right? The, 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 the end goal is that you have, right, you're, you're right, you, you, you're a former thief and you're in an unguarded bank vault with all the money and you don't take any because you don't want to. The end goal is that you root out the desire for sin. But along the way, the way that you uh, make the short-term victories along the way is by addressing the opportunity for sin, and that's the power of darkness. The power of darkness is that it gives you opportunity to sin, and then if the desire to sin is still intact, the opportunity meets the desire, and you fall into, into sin. The long-term strategy is cultivate love for Christ that, that starts to choke out uh, the, the desire for sin, but the short-term strategy is to eliminate 
spaces and areas in your life where you have the opportunity to sin under the cover of darkness. So cultivate transparency. Invite accountability. Be open, right? Be, be an open book with your spouse and your family and your friends and your small group and your church. The, the more that you're open and transparent and vulnerable, the less leverage your sinful nature has. The sin is less tempting. The religious leaders wanted to arrest and take Jesus away, but they didn't do it in the middle of the day because it was not dark. They didn't have the opportunity. We have to fight sin on both levels. We fight sin at the desire level. Attend church, sing hymns, read your Bible, spend time in prayer, practice silence and solitude and fasting and share the gospel with others, right? Spend time uh, with Jesus. Spend time doing the things that Jesus calls you to do and you will over time find your heart inclining away from the world and toward Jesus. You'll love him more. You'll enjoy him more. You'll enjoy all of the things that you used to enjoy less. But along the way, fight the short-term strategy of eliminating the opportunity for sin. So if there's, if there's a, a person or a group of people who are a bad influence on you, you find yourself engaging in gossip or, or slander uh, more when you're around them or drinking too much when you're around them, whatever it is, then, then tell them that and stop hanging out with them. Or if you watch certain movies and television that are not edifying and they, they cause you you know, that they don't cause you to reflect on the glory of God and they distract you and make you vulnerable to sin, don't watch them. Eliminate the opportunity for sin. If watching the news or reading commentary makes you angry or agitated or anxious because of, you know, and makes you hate the people that have different political beliefs than you do, then don't watch that stuff, right? If it's causing you to sin, then, then amputate it. If you find yourself looking at content on the internet that's inappropriate or unhelpful, then then put stuff, download software that won't let you do it, right? The point is, as, as we grow in spiritual maturity, our love for Christ and our desire for intimacy with him will grow stronger and our desire for sin will get weaker and weaker. But no matter where you are on your journey of spiritual maturity, sin will always be tempting and your sinful nature will always be stronger in the dark. Shine a light on it. Eliminate the opportunity for sin by, by inviting accountability, by being an open book. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He faked it. And he fell away. He loved the world more than he loved Jesus. And so Jesus is calling us to follow him and love him and persevere. Peter was overly defensive and combative and argumentative and self-righteous and prideful and Jesus is calling us to be humble and patient and kind like he was. And the religious leaders operated under the cover of darkness where no one could see them, where they could do whatever they wanted and no one would know where sin was at its strongest. And Jesus is calling us to come into the light, confess our sins, one another, be accountable to one another, live in relationship with one another so that we can overcome sin and grow in our faith together.
Father, we are entirely dependent on your sovereign grace. Apart from your mercy, we wouldn't know you. We wouldn't be walking with you. You are the only thing keeping us from the judgment and wrath of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to persevere in the faith and love you. We pray that you would help us to be kind and gentle and humble. We pray that you would help us to live our lives in the light of Christian 